0: Hello and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson.
1: I'm Kate Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel.
0: Let's jump into the news. First up, Jose Valim announced that he is stepping down in his role as the board director of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. I imagine he's been wearing a lot of hats and this change would allow him to step back from those responsibilities And instead focus on a new role as the co-chair of the machine learning working group. So that sounds like an exciting thing. I know he's really interested in pushing that forward. That's part of that project NX initiative. And he also makes a call out to the Erlang community at large for any developers who are interested in machine learning. Asking that they join as well. Because I know that the NX library, a lot of its special support comes through use of macros like defn. And macros aren't supported in Erlang. So I'm happy to see there's an effort to bring the benefits of the new NX library to the Erling ecosystem itself as well.
1: Hey, there's a new Phoenix Live View book that's coming out. It's currently in beta release. Uh, this book is being written by Bruce Tate and Sophie Benedetto. It's being published by Prag Prague. I think it's going to be a really cool book. Uh, I see some stuff in there about code generation. We got some tips on how to do live view and, and composition of that. So things like stateless components, how to mess with forms and change sets in their state, stateful components. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good, a good book. Certainly a lot of uh, topical uh, stuff in there. I think that live view has kind of taken the web dev uh, world by storm. So it's going to be good to have a, a very helpful book like this out there in the market. So congrats, Sophie and Bruce, uh, for the initial release to that. And I'm very excited to see the, the full release uh, come out.
2: Yeah. And speaking of Live View, Chris McCord recently shared his perspectives around the general community and excitement with Live View. He said, it really feels like live Phoenix Live View has helped spawn a new era Lots of excitement bubbling around server-rendered apps more and more. We are also getting new leads specifically mentioning LiveView and the Hacker News, Who's Hiring often mentions it in the role. Exciting times ahead. This is really cool. I, I mean, I feel like I've also noticed it. I don't know. What do you guys think? It's pretty interesting times.
0: Yeah, I am really excited just because I think it's taken some time for LiveView to mature and people to feel confident with it, you know, to see other people's successes. And I think now people are starting to kind of latch on and, and explore and really push forward with that in projects.
1: yeah, I, I think it's not just us talking about it that makes makes it exciting right because we we talk about Liveview a lot here, but <laughs> I think it's also a lot of the uh, blog posts out there, you know on the Twitter sphere, you got just positive sentiment about it. But more than that, I think it's just uh, it's these case studies that have been being published. You know, there's Live View really enables, you know, that, that fast productivity with small teams and not only that, but it's also highly performant. So it's like, what are the, you know, what are the downsides? You got to,
0: <laughs> you got to think that that's got to be a pretty short list. All right. Next item is the company, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, it's aeternity.com. It's the A-E combined as a single letter. It's the way it's represented. But they released a project open source called Earl Scripton. And EarlScripten, like it's it's different from the previous project called MScripten, EMScripten. So this is a source to source transpiler capable of converting most Erlang code bases into semantically equivalent PureScript projects. And you're like, PureScript, what's that? So PureScript is a strongly typed language heavily inspired by Haskell, and it compiles down to JavaScript. So taking PureScript as an intermediary step, EarlScripten allows you to take your Existing Erlang applications and easily ship them out to JavaScript users. This particular company, they're playing with it in the arena of blockchain tech and seeing, hey, can we even make an actual blockchain node run in the browser and have share a lot of that code with what's running on the backend? While this isn't directly helpful to Elixir projects, I thought I know Gleam there, like you write Gleam code and that transpiles into Erlang code. So you could add this to the chain and get. Gleam to Erlang <laughs> to PureScript to JavaScript. I don't see any problems there, but it just seems just crazy enough that it could work. But I just thought that was a pretty interesting idea. And I, I'm glad to see they're open sourcing that. That's awesome. Yeah.
2: And if you're interested or wanting to play with the new NX library and getting started with machine learning and Elixir, make sure that you're following Sean Moriarty's blog. Sean was the person who's been basically pairing with Jose Villiam in the creation of NX. On his blog, he's been posting different NX tip of the week posts. So give him a follow if you're interested in that stuff.
0: We've talked about this one before, but OTP24 will be released soon. This is an exciting release and includes a lot of performance improvements and optimizations, including the JIT project. And so some of the other things that you'll see are improved error messages, faster sets, floating point 16 support, which was part of what was important for NX to work, process aliases. Uh, improved EDoc support and a lot more. You can check the show notes for a link to their changelog. The thing I wanted to mention is that this is RC one, and they said they plan to have a total of three RC releases. So I'm really excited and really looking forward to this release.
1: Yeah, me too. That's going to be a good one. Also, um, there's been uh, some interesting tweets out there about the Finch library, uh, in particular about uh, how it performs at scale. Um, if you haven't heard of Finch, Finch is a library as uh, an HTTP client library. Uh, it leverages Mint underneath. You may have also heard of Mint. Mint uh, and Finch, therefore, are different kinds of HTTP libraries where they're focused on opening the HTTP connections, the TCP connections, uh, holding them open, doing the multiple uh, passes through those connections, and then closing the connection. So it's it's more like build the connection and then use it, whereas other uh, libraries like HTTP Poison, you might be just more used to it just post, just Get you know and it opens the connection, does the thing, and then closes it so that that's a core difference between Finch and mint versus some of the uh, some of the other libraries out there. So the tweet is is from Chris Keithley, the author of, of Finch. He posted some interesting uh stats on Finch and, and the stats that were really interesting was about latency and uh, I noticed the 90th percentile uh, latency so if you look at the uh, if you look at the graphs, you'll see that um, other libraries their 90th percentile, sometimes their latency spikes up to hundreds of milliseconds. Uh, and then comparing that to uh, Finch, it, it's down into the teens again, right? No, nothing even goes over 100 milliseconds. So quite an improvement there. To answer the question, why is that faster? Is Finch is, again, focused on making an efficient use of those HP connections, right? Opening up once, doing all of your communication over that open pipe, and then closing the connection. Uh, and it's because of that design model, I think, that Finch uh, and Mint are able to get those kinds of uh, uh, performance gains. And you know you know what Elixir folks like. We we love those gains.
0: And we love pretty graphs that show it. And,
2: yep. yeah, <laughs> always, always down for a pretty graph. <laughs> I just wanted to mention two pull requests that recently have gone in. First one being in Ecto, there was an interesting pull request for ecto.multi.inspect, so I can Imagine that's kind of useful if you're ever getting into multis. Sometimes they can be a little complicated, and it'd be nice to kind of pause in the middle—not necessarily pause, but put a little inspect in the middle that works natively with uh, multis to kind of s- inspect your state and see what what's going on in the middle of your of your multi. And the other pull request is into Phoenix Live View. If you had recently updated to their most latest release, you might have noticed that there was a compiler warning when you were using live component. So this PR fixes that. So if, as soon as that is released, which I'm looking forward to, because that kind of destroyed our pipeline if you use dash dash compile or warnings as errors. So that'll mm. be fixed soon. <laughs> yes. And
0: last, uh, Discord made some waves recently, announcing publicly that they were moving away from Go to Rust. And this got picked up in the general tech news sites too. You know, why is that relevant to us? We're talking about Elixir. That's kind of our main focus. So it's because Discord heavily uses Elixir for their backend systems as well. So it's cool that throughout this post, Elixir is getting a lot of mentions. And a lot of the integration is using Rust with Elixir NIFs. And that's where their performance is critical. So this is another article where they really break it down with charts and data to say... You know, doing a Go implementation versus a Rust implementation and and really outlining where they found the problems and the bottlenecks. You know, when we talk about um, needing to turn to something like Rust or something like that when performance becomes a real focus and we want to use NIFs or something, this is one of those resources that helps kind of evaluate options and you know, so you don't have to do all the testing and trial by error yourself. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that post. So it's it's fun to check out. And that's it for the news. Today, I'm excited to have our very special guest, Sasha Yurik. Sasha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So I'm really excited because, you know, Sasha is the author of Elixir in Action, widely recognized. It's, I'd say, probably the best book when you're learning Elixir. And you've been talking about this idea of code design in some of your blogs recently. And it was something that I've also been thinking about. And I'm really excited and interested in talking about this just as a topic. You know, It's one of those things as the space matures and we're, we're working on projects that are longer lived, you know, we think about these more and like, how can I better structure my applications? So I'm really excited to talk about that. But before we do that,
3: maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Hello, everyone who is listening to this podcast. And uh, thank, uh, thank you for inviting me again. My name is Sasha. Uh, I'm from uh, Zagreb, Croatia in Europe. And uh, I currently work as an Elixir mentor Primarily uh, focused on uh, helping teams uh, adopt Elixir and work with it in production. And uh, I mostly cooperate with uh, very big things, a digital agency from the United States. And it's a, basically a cooperation between people from the States and uh, also from other countries, including Croatia. And uh, yeah, so I basically help them, you know, be more confident with their uh, Elixir code and help them uh, adopt and learn, uh, learn Elixir better.
1: Speaking of uh, very big things, I've noticed that you started blogging on their, uh, on their blog, and it's uh, about the topic of code design. For folks that haven't caught up on those uh, blog posts or haven't seen it yet, can you give us a, a quick synopsis of what you're, what you're trying to do here with this blog series, and then, and then we can start jumping into more specific topics?
3: Yeah, precisely. So, uh, I mean, I hope that we're going to explore this throughout uh, today's session. Uh, Essentially, it's going to be a multi-part series. At the moment, we're discussing uh, there are two parts out. Uh, I think that the next one might even be out tomorrow or definitely soon because it's done. And I expect like something like five or six parts in in the entire series, which is focused on uh, producing better structured code, you know, maintainable code, if you will. And so this is something that uh, is a big part of my work uh, with very big things. And uh, in general, something that I feel very passionate about. Uh, I have this feeling that in our industry code, you know, is kind of something that we treat more as a means to an end, you know, something that we just you know, type by banging on the keyboard and we we get the functionality that works and, you know, ship it and then do the next feature. I have a feeling that it's kind of, a, in many places, it's sort of a lost art or we kind of lost this focus on uh, that code is more than just, you know, a thing that's supposed to be working. It's actually uh, something that is primarily focused on humans, right? So uh, I remember uh, it's been like some, maybe 20 years ago when I, when I read it in a seminal book, uh, for me at least, and it was a very popular book at the time, very uh, well regarded, called Code Complete by Steve McConnell. Where I read, uh, now I'm probably not going to quote it correctly, but, uh, what Steve there said is like write code for people first and not for machines, you know, because a lot of the times the developers spend, uh, is reading the code, not writing it, you know, so you analyze how something works and, uh, then you, you sort of figure out the tactics and the strategy of how to uh, expand it or do something with it, right? And so the code is essentially a tool of communication, uh, between people, uh, but we kind of forget, forgot this idea. And so you, you know, you end up with, uh, this strange situation. Um, uh, like I'm not a na- native English speaker. I had to look it up in dictionary, but like when you talk about the word legacy, uh, so, uh, Legacy, you know, it surprised me because I learned a lot of my English from, uh, you know, literature, uh, IT literature and forums and stuff. And I always thought that legacy is something bad, you know, but uh, <laughs> apparently legacy can also be a good thing, right? So something that we inherited from, you know, uh, influential people from the past, like, I don't know, Martin Luther King, for example, or we, in, in our uh, industry, in our narrow focus, we could say that legacy of Joe Armstrong is Erlang and everything we have. Uh, yep. in there, but in a programming world, uh, legacy in, in code, you know, legacy is always something bad. Some, something like a piece of crap written by other people or, uh, <laughs> former versions of ourselves. <laughs> you know, that this isn't how it's supposed to be. So yeah, it's, uh, the, the focus of the series is on, you know, how can we make things better? Like can we, can we make the code, which is actually, you know, uh, more pleasant to, to work with?
1: Yeah. I think those are fantastic points, and I'm, I'm glad you're talking about it. And I, I think that um, when you have this kind of perspective on code, maybe one of those marking points in your own career as a developer to transition into you know more of an architect or a team lead or senior developer, maybe, it becomes much more of a point to communicate than it is to, to write. A good analogy, I think, is, you know, in, in, is architecture, like building architecture the buildings are only built um, for a short period of time, but they're lived in for much longer than that. <laughs> yeah. And there's obviously good good ways to construct a building. Like, you, you know, it's easy enough to just say, oh, it's got four sides and a roof. But, you know, it's not very pleasant to look at. It's not very pleasant to live in. It's, it's going to be, it needs to be much more visually interesting. It needs to have good features in there, you know, staircases to go up, elevators, that kind of stuff. All of those details um, that, that influence the design of, of the building. And just like that with code, you know, we live in that code a lot more than we, we are actually constructing it. Um, so yeah, very good points. I'm glad you're writing this.
3: This is a great point. I just want to jump off of this. and um, So like when you said that we live in the code, this is something that I feel we kind of neglect, you know, code is for a developer, the primary working environment, you know, like physically speaking, of course, we sit in our comfortable chairs and we have our air conditioners and whatnot. Most of us are these days are working from home. Uh, but like virtually we spend a lot of time in that code, right? And so if that code is unorganized and, you know, I, I worked on some terrible code bases and just to be clear, this is not an accusation of other people. You know, I produced a lot of that bad code myself. So whatever, you know, I'm going to say negative, I'll be the first to admit to that sin, you know, just to be clear so I don't have to <laughs> disclaim it every time. But anyway, you know, I worked in some bad code and it has a, a really bad influence on a person, right? Like on your mental health, you know, things take too long, you get frustrated, then you start, uh, you know, you try to cut some corners uh, because of that uh you make more mistakes you end up working overtime and you know it starts affecting uh in some cases and I've experienced it myself it affects your uh life outside of work you know? it's really a part of the uh environment uh of uh you know wh- where we're working and uh, we want that environment to be reasonable so you know we can do our job efficiently and effectively and uh you know we can be uh just better at what we're doing, we can focus on the actual problems. So uh, I think that this is something that is also often very neglected about the code. You know, many people say that, like, code doesn't matter. For me, code matters. Code is, uh, like, there is no distinction, for example, between code and the people. Code is the product of the people for the people, right? And so uh, you cannot really make a distinction between the two. And uh, we, I think that as an industry in general, we need to pay more attention to that aspect of our lives. This is some deep stuff, Sasha. I'd never
2: really thought of it at that kind of level, but like now that you mention it, it's like crystal clear. Like, yeah, you're totally right. Like, totally does bleed into your personal life. So, excited to kind of get into it some more.
0: Yeah, I've actually experienced that, and just I was thinking about that recently. You know, working on a a system that's you know organically grown over time, and you know, technologies have been adopted and and abandoned and, and exchanged for other technologies, and they're still there, part of the code. It does take a toll, like an emotional. Mental, it's like, oh, I, oh, I got to go find where this is. Oh, I don't even know where to look, kind of a thing. You know, it's just kind of like you feel that weight. So I, I am interested in talking about how we can approach some of this without, you know, I, I'd say if we, if we took it to the other extreme, you could fiddle all day just rearranging the code and not actually making any new features, not actually bringing value to the business. So, like, mm-hmm. there's always that balance of how much benefit can I bring. And establish that. So that's what I love about this, this series that you're undertaking, is it just helps open that discussion, yeah. so we yeah. can all kind of weigh in other, on other, you know, observations, too.
3: Yeah, this is a great point to mention, especially about the balance. You know, balance is something we should be looking for in uh, all the aspects of our lives, I would say, you know. And uh, speaking about the balance here, uh, like, one extreme is, which I think is more uh, prevalent, uh, the one where we just, you know, ship features and don't really care much about the code. And this is kind of, you know, like... Uh, I'm not a fan of analogies, but I think that this would be a sort of an occasion analogy when you think about running a marathon, right? And so you could run a marathon, like I'm going to sprint the first 100 meters or whatever it is in your Imperial units in like uh, 10 seconds. And, you know, clearly I'm not going to be able to run the entire marathon if I take that strategy. So you want to pace yourself. You want to have a stable and sustainable pace, a balanced pace, so you can actually endure this long run. And the software project itself is a long run spending, you know, years, in some cases, even decades, you know. But another extreme is, uh, which I've also seen happen occasionally, not so much, but still, is where we kind of try to be these master architects. And, you know, we build uh, these elaborate architectures for the sake of architecture itself. it sort of feels like, you know, when the pendulum swings, and we are sort of frustrated with all these ad hoc approaches. And now we say we're going to really do it properly. And then we kind of lose the focus on what we actually w- want to do. And uh, we we sort of make a different kind of mess with same negative uh, consequences. So the balance is really something that we need to look for. Well, I think this is a great point to
0: jump in and, and start talking about these blog series. So like the first one I thought was really interesting because it's like, you know, you're talking about um, not specifically code, but more about some of the processes and like uh, some like, you know, using CI and using Credo and things
3: like that. So maybe you could kind of give us a little background as to what kind of Mm. stuff you're covering there. Yeah, I want to say that, like, if you want to make clear code. You know, I call this code clear, not clean. I, I don't like the clean, uh, the whole movement. There are some individual good ideas, but I think that it's kind of, uh, it seems to me as if it's a goal in itself, you know, it serves its own purpose. So for me, what I want from the code is clarity. You know, I want to be able to clearly understand how the author solved the problem. Maybe that solution is incorrect. Maybe, you know, it's suboptimal. Maybe they didn't understand the problem, but if I can clearly understand from the code how they approach it, then I can work with it, right? And I want this for, for all my team members. So that's, that's the property we want and we have to commit to it. This is the, the first thing, you know, it's not going to happen by chance, right? You, you need to say like, this is the part of our primary goals. We want to ship features, but we also want to have the clarity in our code base. And, uh, to get there, you need a process. You need like this first part basically describes the framework that sort of, uh, makes it even possible uh, for us to, to get that code. It, it's not going to lead us to the code by itself. So more is needed, but this is like the fundamental framework. Essentially, uh, everything revolves around pull requests, right? So our, uh, what we call collaboration branches. And those are the branches where, uh, multiple people work on, like develop branch, release branch, you know, staging branch, whatever. Uh, those are uh, protected, which means no one can push to them directly. You need to open a pull request. The pull request in order to be accepted, all the checks have to pass the automated checks. So we have, we run of course tests, we check compilation warnings, we check if the code is formatted. We run dialyzer checks to verify our types. Uh, Maybe we'll come to types later. I think the types play also an important role in uh, the clarity of the code. Um, And we run Credo. Uh, Credo is our main style guide. So, you know, I used to work, probably all of you have experience from companies where you have like, I don't know, 100 pages of style guide, which uh, Mm -hmm. I would usually remember like 10% and then in practice I would maybe, you know, actually apply 5% of all of those rules. So this is kind of very tedious and very error prone. We try to automate these things as much as we can and so the formatter is used for that and credo is used for that credo is wonderful i really love it uh, because it's very unopinionated so you can really tweak it however you want to we started with actually i think all of the rules enabled and then we removed the ones which in practice don't seem to make sense we add some of our own rules as uh, we see fit in practice and anyway, you know, so this this is like the low-hanging fruit that kind of, you know, keeps the code in some basic check. By itself, this will not lead to clarity, but it just removes some, you know, idle uh, draining discussions about, you know, should this be split into multiple lines or should you do this or should you do that? So it just kind of, you know, leaves more energy for focusing on the actual thing. And so once all that is done, the second thing that needs to be to happen is the, the pull request has to be approved. So which means that code has to be reviewed. And this is a very, uh, very important point. You know, like, uh, when we talk about, you know, uh, as another analogy, uh, for example, books, you know, when you're publishing a book, no one will publish your book without a review. You can maybe self publish it if you want to, but, uh, you need a review. And uh, I also like to say that, for example, Elixir in action is, uh, As good as it is because it had uh, good reviewers, you know, there, there is like incredible amount of feedback that I received, uh, during, during the writing process, right? And, uh, I mean, clearly in code, you know, speaking about that balance, you will not have that same amount of review as, as you will have for a published book. Uh, but you want to have some review, some check of, you know, like, is this code readable? Is this code clear? Uh, you know, that does it actually solve the problem that it's supposed to be solving? And so this is an important uh, important part of our culture this is what we do uh you know so typically the member will assign other team members for the review only one approval is needed, but uh, time permitting, of course, everyone will chime in. An important uh, role here is to have a well-organized pull request. So it has to be uh, relatively small, so one can actually fit it into a brain. It has to be broken into smaller commits, uh, so it tells a story, again, so you can fit it into your brain. I had uh, situations you know, where I would uh, reject the pull request because it was too big or because it, it wasn't well-organized. You typically try to do this thoughtfully, so you say like look, I cannot really comprehend this. Uh, this. This just, you know, exceeds my brain power. Uh, and so uh, like you, you would maybe try to offer some suggestions. In some cases, I would actually even offer, offer to pair with uh, the author. So, you know, like let's start from scratch and we will apply some of these changes that you made and we'll try to organize them better. So it takes a little bit of time to adjust to that. But once you get to that mindset, uh, it's it becomes a second nature and you're not really particularly slower for it, you know, and it actually leaves a good history in your or git or whatever source control you're using for uh later understanding and once you have like those smaller pull requests and smaller commits it's actually easier to spot some errors as well because you know we also focus of course on the behavior itself and uh, otherwise you know you you do focus on clarity so we don't prohibit things you know I heard some from other talks and blogs you know talking about uh, code reviews this is also a frequently debated topic. Uh, some advices that say like you know uh, you shouldn 't uh, discuss naming things or you shouldn 't uh, you know focus on the readability. I, I disagree you know this is an important part like can I understand this code? How easy it is for me to understand this code? This is uh, a very important part from the uh, review and uh, just today actually we had a situation where the discussion started from naming, uh, which was uh, kind of confusing, and this led us down the path where we discovered the bug you know, but it all started with You know, just looking like this name is confusing. Let's uh, can we make it better? And then we made it better, but we had to refactor the implementation. It was like ten lines of code to be clear. And once we refactored that, uh, it was clear. Like, hang on a second, this this isn't right. You know, because you are you get this clarity from that, right? It's this is this is the big uh, the big important gain. So yeah, that's roughly the process. You know, it it kind of makes the framework for uh, sets the stage for everything else. You talked about Credo,
0: how you really enjoy that as a tool, and how you actually created some of your own custom Credo checks. And so I just wanted to include one, which I thought is really interesting. It's the strict module layout. So there's a link to this in the show notes where you can go find that. It's also linked from his first blog post in the series. It's just talking about like, you know, the list of aliases and how I have my use at the top and I have requires and, you know, how those are all arranged. I just wonder if you can kind of talk briefly about that and why you think that's important.
3: <laughs> like, first of all, controversial enough. I don't think it's like super important. Having said that, uh, when, uh, when I just started working with WeBT, we were discussing this. Like, we were discussing what kind of style, I, style guide are we going to have? And, uh, my main point was that definitely we need to automate as much as we can. There are a couple of informal style guides floating around. I forgot which one. I, I looked at them all and I took basically the layout proposition from, uh, you know, the one that was more elaborate. So they had like some proposition, like uh, you should start with module attributes and then go with public functions and private functions. And uh, there's also a mandated or recommended uh, order of uh, use required imports uh, alias. So you start with like the stronger statements such as use and then you go towards sort of semantically weaker or less disruptive statements you end up. But I think that the last thing is alias, if I remember correctly. I don't even have to remember, you know, because we wrote a check for that, you know, because uh, (laughs) when you look at those set of like 10 elements... And the order there's no way you're going to remember that right uh so i just said like no we have to write a credo check for this and we first wrote our own private check it was running for a while in our projects and then at some point you know i just submitted it to to the repo uh because yeah that, that's what i like about credo it's like a style guide toolkit you know so you can submit any kind of check you want They will pick whether they want to uh, accept it or not. But in general, you know, Credo doesn't really enforce any of these checks. So many of them exist like, you know, opt-in and uh, you you basically pick whatever you like.
1: Yeah. And as a minor point there, it's going to suggest like editors a lot of times will have an integration with uh, linters like this, uh, Credo being one of them. So even if you're not going to get into the habit of like running mix Credo at the command line just to check your code base, the experience for me, at least, is, you know, I, I'm using NeoVim and there's a there's a series of plugins you can use and it can show you all the warnings in line, you know, that you have. And, and that's from Mix Compile That's also from Credo. Essentially, it just offloads those kind of questions. We don't have to have that conversation, you know, in our in our team anymore. You know, so if I get that warning in my editor, I just correct it right then and there. I don't have to worry about like if a process failing later on down the down the road, though that is a good idea to have a CI-enforced process there so everyone's on the same page and it is enforced, but hopefully editor integration way up closer to, to this, you know, when you're writing the code takes care of all those problems for you. So definitely encourage that workflow. Um, but the big point there is removing it from the discourse uh, between the team, right? Automating that as much as possible. It's, it wastes too much time on things that, uh, uh, you know, don't really affect the, the functionality.
3: Yeah, uh, I have to admit, you know, I used to be my, my younger self, not like even too much younger self was an op not really a fan of these tools, uh, because uh, I thought and I still think that, you know, th- this doesn't give you readability or clarity of the code in itself, you know. Uh, so uh, that having said, you know, after working in practice, both with Credo and the formatter, uh, I essentially agree that the benefits outweigh uh, the bad stuff. And in general, you know, what you get is you just remove this slow hanging fruit, these nitpicky discussions off the table, and you can actually focus on the real stuff. Yeah, that's what I love about it. It's
0: like, it's that nitpicky stuff, you know, cause that, that's the stuff that's like, well, oh, when, when David reviews my code, he always like, you know, finds these stupid little things and it's just like, I get hostility, right? <laughs> like within yeah. the team, it's just because someone nitpicks something. It's like, you just automate that. It's like, hey, it's not,
3: it's not personal. It's mm-hmm. not you. It's like, this is just the tool. Yeah, I remember when at my former company, uh, we used to work on Elixir, there was no formatter. And we were at some point like, oh, okay, we need a formatter because a bunch of pull requests uh, or code review comments for, you know, about indentation, layout and whatnot. And, you know, once you have the formatter, basically most of the stuff goes away. So what
2: are, what are your thoughts on like
3: Credo versus the
2: formatter? Because like, especially this change that we were talking about, like putting use import alias require in the right order. Like to me, it almost would feel better if i just hit save in my editor and it formatted it that way rather than giving me a warning saying hey you did this wrong it's like i don't actually care like just do it for me like where do we draw that line and is the format or even extensible enough for us to like put this kind of stuff in there
3: yeah, as far as I know, the formatter is not extensible from the outside, at least. I mean, maybe you could fork and change it, of course, but uh, uh, otherwise, I don't think so. Uh, there is definitely, you know, I mean, formatter made some credo checks obsolete, like there was a check for maximum line length and stuff like that, so you don't really need to deal with it. But uh, most of the time, I feel they complement uh, themselves. So, you know, formatter is like a lower level. This is not a linter. It's literally like, you know, here's how your code should be laid out. It mostly gets, gets things right. I, I disagree with some of the decisions, but in general, you know, I think it's uh, mostly good. Um, and then, you know, Credo takes off with like a higher level, but still automated checks uh like you know talking about layout, whether you should be invoking inspect, IO inspect or not. And uh it has like stuff for uh cyclomatic complexity, ABC complexity and uh whatnot. You know, i d I don't even remember all of these checks anymore. Uh but it basically these are the things that are uh kind of a matter of an opinion. So not every team will want to have them. And even if you have them within the team you still uh may want to turn them off uh, someplace. Like, for example, we uh, want to have type specifications for public functions, and we do have a credo check for that. There is like an official one, which I think you have to opt into. But uh, at the same time, in like a web part, in controllers or plugs, type specs don't really make sense. They are like too generic and too vague. And it would just be bureaucracy to write, you know, spec which like takes a con and returns a con. What is that like? Uh, that's that's nothing. So So we es- essentially turn them off in those files. That makes sense. So a lot of
0: that stuff that we just talked about, that's in the first article where you're dealing with the process that the team can use for writing their code and getting it reviewed. So then this second article you wrote got a little bit more concrete with
3: code. So that one's interesting. So maybe you can kind of introduce us to that one. The general idea is, I mean, it's, I think, clear to people who have been working with code for some time is that, like, the problem is you cannot grasp the entire program in your mind, right? So typically, you know, like, even for smaller projects, uh, your code base will be at least a couple of thousand lines very easily. It goes to, like, uh, lower 10,000s or, or of course, for larger projects, hundreds or hundreds of thousands or millions of lines of code, you know, and no one can fit uh, that into their mind. and So you want to split the code into smaller pieces, which are mostly independent or loosely dependent mutually, right? So you can actually study a single piece in isolation from from other pieces. So the second article uh, basically goes into this uh, high-level division, which is not something we invented or it's not something super revolutionary. It's the idea of, uh, Phoenix uh, contexts, basically, you know, just a little bit, uh, uh, maybe refined. You know, we we take a bit more concrete approach than the official one, right? So uh, effectively, we treat uh, the system. Uh, we divide it into two layers. There is the core, and then there is the interface. So core is everything that the system is supposed to be doing. You know, like uh, the uh, the example I have in blog, as far as I remember, was uh, for example a user register with an uh, email and the password, and uh, so. They they basically, if like email is unique and the password is strong enough, then they can register. And uh, then another feature is uh, a successfully registered user can also authenticate with the same combination of an email and a password, right? So this is the behavior of the system. And the interface is how you expose these operations to the external world. Those could be like uh, REST, uh, GraphQL, uh, it could be uh, sockets and channels and live view or regular Phoenix view. Uh, I had a an interesting case in previous company where we implemented the server side of the PostgreSQL protocol. So we were pretending to be a PostgreSQL database for some reason. That was like a pretty, pretty interesting thing to work on. Uh, and that's another example of the interface, you know, and then of course you have tests, which are like clients of the core directly. So you have like this interface part and the core part. And, uh, essentially like even in the smallest of applications, uh, there is already a lot of complexity, which, uh, justifies separating these two. Things say you want to say you write a uh, hello world in Phoenix, you know so you will do mix pHx new and you place hello world like in the proper uh, controller action and then you look at that code you know how much of the stuff you have around before you come to this hello world buried in that single controller in the uh, in the action you know and of course you're not writing hello world you're you're gonna write more of that behavior you know? so so uh, essentially by splitting uh, between interface and the core. You split two complex parts, uh, which are, you know, not very tightly related. So dealing with like all these routes and cookies and uh, all, uh sessions and whatnot that you have on the interface part—that's one complexity—and then another is the behavior itself, you know. And so ideally, when uh, someone new comes to the to the project, uh, the new member, they essentially can first start by looking into the core right, which is the context uh, in, in terms that you are, are familiar with in the, the official terms from the docs, you know, so you basically look at the core and you see, okay, this is one feature, there is another feature, you can study that behavior, and otherwise, like if you need to make some changes in the interface itself, like the way cookies are handled or something like that, you don't really have to know about the behavior of the system to actually make those changes. So you basically make all these smaller pieces that can be individually worked with, and so you can, uh, you know, grow into that code base uh, one piece at a time. So what I think is interesting about that is like, so this idea
0: of core, you know, it knows nothing about the web, right? It doesn't know about a con, it doesn't know about templates, you know, with the exception of maybe like generating emails or something like that. But it's not like dealing with views or anything like that. Mm. And then you have like the web side that like it's dealing with cookies and authentication and sessions and form
3: posts and, and rendering like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so, like the important part here, it's it's nice that you mentioned, for example, the the email example, I, I mentioned this in the blog, and then there is also the example of the change set, which I talk about. So, essentially, you know, the, the key insight is to, to think about, like, is some behavior that I'm implementing, is it common for, for all possible interfaces, or is it specific to a single one? And when I say all possible, uh, not only just, I don't mean just the ones that we are currently supporting, but I also like to think about a couple of them. Like if I had to support this via WebSocket, would I have to make something different or is this essentially the same? And so this kind of helps me figure out whether something is a core behavior or not, you know. So, And, and just to be clear, this is not a rule, this is more of a guideline, but I think that this guideline works pretty well mo- most of the time. And then the decisions become clearer. So when we talk about an email, for example, uh, that, that's what I mentioned in the blog, you know, a user registers, they get an activation email. So to confirm that they are actually the owners of the mail, uh, this behavior is common, no matter how you register, right? You will always get that email. And so this is the core behavior. Now, email itself is an HTML message. So uh, you can compose it however you want to, but Phoenix views and templates work really well for that. And therefore we use Phoenix view and templates in the core for this particular thing, because ultimately Phoenix view is just a builder of text, you know, (laughs) nothing more. And it's not uh, necessarily tied to, to the web or to, to, you know, exposing web pages. So uh when you when you start to think about this core versus uh, interface separation in those terms uh, many of these decisions become like very clear uh you don't really have to brainstorm a lot about them and you don't have so much of this subjective stuff like you know it feels like a interface concern and it feels like a like a core concern you know it becomes uh i'm not going to say mechanical but because it never is but it's it's much easier to make such decisions
2: i like the the point that you make at some point in the article between like just sending all of the params through versus like the user and the password, because like, I guess I had never thought of it that way. And after I read that, I was like, that makes a lot of sense because you're like, you, like you mentioned, like, you're kind of like leaking the front end concerns into the, into the core. It's like, here's all of my params. Like you figure it out. Like you figure out what you want to do. Whereas like when you read the code, the way that you're suggesting, like register user takes uh, email and a password like just reading it it's so you get so much more clarification like you've been talking about this is
3: this is another important point and that was like uh, i think one of the first thing that i uh when i started working with wbt uh that's one of the first thing that i mentioned on like w- we need to have this core well typed you know the public api not not the private functions are you know just internal helpers so uh, basically the operation should have a well meaningful name Right. So name is very important, uh, because it tells a story without you needing to read the implementation. Uh, and you know, when you have some params, those should be well specified, you know, properly specified. Like, uh, if you say I'm accepting any or I'm accepting a map. So with whatever the key and value is that this is very vague. This is hazy and it's hard to reason about what comes in what comes out you know and so this is where we take a more uh, refined approach than the official phoenix docs you know phoenix uh, will basically i think advise you to you know just take the params in the controller and just pass it on to the context and then you you're going to do all the change set uh, stuff there uh we don't do that we make this distinction between normalizing the data, which means converting the free form map of string to whatever into a well-shaped data where uh the set of keys uh, are keys are atoms and it's a well-defined set. So all the unknown keys are removed. Uh if some required stuff is missing, we already report an error and we don't go further. Uh values are well typed, so like integer is an integer and uh you know float is a float and uh enumeration becomes an atom and stuff like that you typically get those when you use graphql for free and otherwise of course with uh you can do it with uh, change sets so you can use change set like schema less change set or uh change sets we are not which are not based on the database uh in uh the interface layer as well and then we go you know we just pass this typed data to the core and just by reading those function names and the specification you already know so much you can assume so much about the implementation without you know actually having to read it which is why naming is important too. And so we don't uh, differ from, you know, nitpicking on names during the uh, code review.
1: This does really read well.
3: Uh, I love, you know,
1: back to Kate's point about like you, the register function has a couple of parameters. You, you pass in email, password, it's very clear what you get. Uh, how, how do you balance that though with a big form that you get? It's got 10, 15 fields on it. You know, I'm not going to have a 15 arity function that takes all of those separately named is this where schemaless change sets really help out
3: no so like when we have, we have, of course have a lot of such cases and essentially we bundle those parameters into a map but into a map which is well typed so which means uh, you you will have like uh, the type will be key with uh, as an atom with a uh, value uh, being the proper type that you expected we can use so the specs also support optional versus required so you can say like these fields are required and the, those fields are optional and so on. So I think that as soon as we go, uh, into, I don't know, three or four parameters, it's really, that is something that is left to decision of a developer, whatever they, they, they prefer. Like for two parameters, I would just use separate parameter for three. I know that some would use already a map. Others would use, uh, three parameters. I would say that four is kind of borderline and on five, definitely, you know, you want to bundle it into a map that you can then pass around. Gotcha. You're saying map, a well-typed map, just to be clear. So,
1: is that one that comes out of a uh, an ecto
3: change set? Uh, so basically, what you can what you get from the change set, if you're using schema schemaless change set, you get a well well-shaped map, right? So the keys are not strings anymore, and uh, unknown keys or unsupported keys have been discarded. And the values are converted into proper types, like, I don't know, if you use the query, uh, the query param of a URL, like in a get request, then you get all the uh, values as strings, you know, but some of them have to be integers. So you want to convert quote five, unquote, into the actual integer five and stuff like that, you know, and so this is what you can do with change set. Schema-less chain, and any kind of change set, of course.
1: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense now, too, that Ecto has been split into Ecto SQL and then regular old Ecto, right? Like the, the chain set focus Ecto can be used for your, your web interface. And Ecto SQL, you know.
3: Chainset is really, you know, has usage beyond the database uh, itself. And it's, it's like a nice, nice, nice tool for normalizing and validating uh, data. I use that a lot. Like in the Rails kind of mindset, it was also
0: called like form objects. I know there's uh, similar concepts that exist in many frameworks, uh, but it's just like something that says I can take and validate the user input and parse that and do casting and everything before it actually goes to the point of needing to talk to like database schemas.
3: Yeah. And so then, then you know, I mean, once once we go deeper into the core, we will actually do the business validations in the core. So uh, this is explained in more details in the article, but the key point is that uh, business level validations, which are common regardless of how you submit the data, like, you know, is the password strong enough, for example, is the email unique? Those are business level validations and we do them, uh, you know, in, inside the core. And one other thing I want
0: to mention is how like when you generate Phoenix examples, I don't want to fault uh, the generated code because like those samples are kind of like the simplest thing that you need to get working and they work pretty well for like a CRUD based application where it's just reading and writing records. I also recognize that there is a gap in between what that gives you as a starting point as like, this is the way I should do it example, and what you kind of need as you have more mature systems that grow.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, I would say that the same gap exists in the documentation, and uh, I feel that it's a natural gap. So so one thing that we all, always forget is kind of like when you're teaching some material, to a person who is new to that material, you're inevitably going to simplify things, right? I'm not going to, you know, if I'm teaching someone programming, I'm not going to start with like three tier architecture and whatnot, because I'm going to lose them in like first five seconds, you know, so you start simple, you know, typically, I used to teach programming way back, like 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, you would shuffle everything into a single function. And then maybe, you know, after some amount of time, you would actually start splitting things into function, you never really go to the any tier architecture in a basic programming course and stuff like that. So in a sense, you know, I think that the the decision made by Phoenix uh, generators and the documentation is justified, you know, it kind of focuses on like, okay, here's how you use this thing normally, you know, and doesn't really, you know, introduce the complexity of uh, what we could quote, call, quote, best practices, unquote, you know. Because then it's you know harder to teach the material, but I think that it's up to us, the readers, to be then critical about it and say like, okay, this is this example makes sense for you know teaching purposes, but in a project production project, you know you, you actually want to have a better, uh, slightly more refined structure. No, so we shouldn't take this documentation as a Bible. Like, this is how you're supposed to be writing. So this is the uh, way and no other way is good. You know, I'm I'm saying this because I actually had discussion with some people who would just basically pull out, you know, the Phoenix doc. Like, look, Phoenix docs say this and we shouldn't do differently. And like, no, you know.
0: (laughs) There is an example that I saw that came out of the security uh, industry. It's like uh, Intel... Wrote some documentation of this is how you write a Bluetooth authentication and connection code, right? And people just took that code and copy and pasted it right into the implementations and shipped them. And like, no, 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 we stripped out all of the error checks and the bounds checks and everything just <laughs> for the clarity of the example. But that's what got shipped. It's like, mm. <laughs> so yeah. And then, then you have like a lot of,
3: you know, vulnerable devices. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, basic just variation of a Stack Overflow-driven uh, development. You know, I mean, to be clear, I, I copy-paste stuff from Stack Overflow, but then, you know, I spend some time actually reading it and, you know trying to, you know, improve it if needed. So, uh, and again, you know, I think the documentation do a well job and I think the generators do a well job uh, because they are focused on teaching and, you know, getting you going as fast as uh, possible. Personally, for what it's worth, I don't use generators other than, you know, creating the initial boilerplate. Uh, after that, I just, you know, uh, generate everything manually on my own, like, you know, additional views and templates and uh, context modules and whatnot. Awesome. So I did want to jump into this other question, because
0: like, you know, we talked about this web and core as being like these boundaries or separation of concerns, or however we want to think about them. And one of the ways I've kind of approached that in the past is I, I like to structure my applications as umbrella projects, where I actually have an app called core, which has like a the, like that well defined API for that that top level API for uh, interfacing with it. Then you have like a separate app, maybe called web or something like that. And I know you've made some comments about how you don't necessarily do that. I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on on that as an approach.
3: Right. So, uh, I mean, you know, when it comes to Umbrella, I've got to say I'm not a fan. I don't really recall ever using it. And I can't think of a scenario where I would recommend it. You know, I think that uh, there, yeah, I mean, there maybe are some cases, but I just haven't uh, encountered them. And I think that in most cases that I've seen Umbrella's recommended are over complicated uh, uses and that umbrella actually don't offer as much benefits as we could get from other things, you know. So, but let, let's get back to the problematic. You know, we have like this uh, interface and we have the core. And so what we want to have in the code is a clear dependency line. So interface is allowed to use the core, obviously, but you don't want to have calls from the core back to the interface why because then the modularity is compromised you know like uh if i have you know i've seen such cases and i made such cases myself uh many times like you have two modules one calls another and then the other calls uh the first one back uh then you need to read them in parallel and the modularity is lost you know (laughs) it begs the question why not have just one module right uh i mean you could you pretty much uh uh didn't didn't do anything uh Uh, efficiently. So yeah, you want to have a straight dependency line uh, and you want to control who can call whom uh, such that you uh, achieve uh, the property where most pieces of the code are isolated from the rest of the code base, right? So yeah, we definitely want the property we want. Interface is allowed to call the core, not vice versa. Another thing you want, you don't want to be everything from the core uh, exposed to the interface. A typical example is repo. Right? You don't want to be calling repo directly from uh from the web layer, from the controllers and such, you know. And uh this is something that gets violated or uh, you know that, that that gets broken this kind of guideline pretty frequently. Intuitively it happens. I remember when I you know started working with WBT, we said like, you know, we're not going to call repo from our, our resolvers. We mostly use a GraphQL API. And then you know Things happen, you're working under pressure, you're working in haste, you have the old habits and it just came into the code base. I actually was reviewing that code, but uh, I kind of missed that thing and I discovered it a little bit later. You know, So this is something that can be enforced through tooling, but Umbrella is not that tool for me. Uh, And I don't think that you can actually enforce it with Umbrella as far as I understand. So yeah, I built this thing called Boundary. We uh, introduced uh, Boundary, I think it's already like more than a year now. To one project, and now it's basically part of every new uh very big things uh project. You know, so boundary is essentially a tool that allows you to set up such constraints. The way it works is like it's a basic library, you add it as a dependency, essentially you need it only during compilation phase. You essentially draw a boundary, you you can like group multiple modules into a single boundary. You know? So you can say like web is one boundary and uh core is another boundary. And uh then you add into the list of your compilers in Mix CXS, you add a boundary compiler. And so what's gonna happen is boundary reports every prohibited cross boundary call. Right? So by default, nothing is allowed. You set up some boundaries, uh you grouped your modules, and now every time a module from one boundary calls a module from another boundary, this is reported as a compiler warning, not an error, uh, because uh Warning allows you to iterate further. You know you can run your program, you can uh, develop further, but uh, you you can clean up those warnings once you you're done. Like say you're in the middle of refactoring or something, you know you refactor and then you will clean up the boundary warnings one, once you're done. Uh, so anyway, by default, no no cross boundary call is allowed, and you have to allow everything. So you will say in your web boundary, web may depend on the core. By doing that, you you now allow calls from web to the core. However, uh, only the top-level module is uh, exported by default. It's public by default, right? So like your top-level module is basically boundary relies on this namespace hierarchy in quotes, right? So like, uh, let's say that we have a to-do system. Where you would have to-do web and to-do as module in the core. So by default, only to-do would be exported. And everything under to-do, like to-do.foo, to bar, those will be private. And uh, you essentially have to say, okay, I'm going to export this uh, other module as well from the to-do boundary to make it public to other boundaries. So this is, in a nutshell, what it can do. This is a project that I've been kind of paying
0: attention to and very interested. in. I've heard people with really good experiences of it. Honestly, I'll just say that I kind of have shied away from actually trying to use it on a large project of ours. Like, I should have just, you know, just actually tried it and see how it worked. But like on the page, you have a warning on there that just says, hey, it's, you know, it might not be right for these situations. And and so I was just wondering, is that warning still applicable? And do you feel like it is okay for people to use
3: it? And kind of where do you feel now? Now that's been like a year out there. It's a good thing you remind me. I have to remove that warning. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh I mean, it still hasn't been tried in a like very large project or I don't know, we tried it. Uh, we use it regularly on VBT projects. Those are like in sizes of lower 10,000. 10, so I think those are like uh, still reasonably small. Works fine. No problems for us. Uh, you know, we even like uh, use a bit more refined design. We define boundaries within boundaries and stuff like that. So it kind of really helps us works well. So uh, I still haven't tried it on a super large project. Uh, I think it should, you know, work reasonably well. But if it doesn't, you know, let me know. And then a uh, special caveat is that I don't really didn't invest any dedicated time in testing it with umbrella. In theory, it should work. Uh, but you know, again, if there are problems, uh, let me know and uh, we'll, we'll fix them. Um, in general, though, I think that, you know, you don't really need umbrella boundaries, basically born out of frustration, of how people are using umbrella to try to enforce some code organization, because with umbrellas, you get much weaker guarantees, and you get much more complications, you know, umbrellas definitely add uh, more complexity to to this whole story. And I think that we can do much better, you know, relying on essentially on uh, more fundamental elixir tooling, such as compilation tracers, which are used uh, to build a boundary. Yeah, I will say that I have seen people
0: misapply umbrella designs, like to try and actually break up business context that actually need to be able to talk to each other. And like, that's not the right way to do it. And mm. I just, w- I will mention like for you, dear listener, like one of the ways I think umbrellas are helpful is like when you have multiple services that really are like almost like a microservice where they have their own data. They might even have their own web interface, you know, and having that kind of like be this separation is where
3: I think they are still helpful. So yeah, yeah I definitely think that there is some you know i can see that there is some potential uh having said that you know my position is very radical you know i want to start with monolith ideally everything is a monolith and a single project monorepo because this is like the easiest to work with uh and then even if i need to do microservices i would still explore uh having it organized as a single project where I would control with environment variables, you know, uh, what parts of the supervision trees are being started, because still, this gives me a lot of uh, convenience as a developer, you know, I can start everything locally just by starting a single thing. It's much easier to write tests on that and everything. And I can still control it in production with, you know, just flags, just start this or start that. This doesn't, of course, scale, this just goes up to a point, but I think it goes pretty far, you can go pretty far with just, you know, mono repo and a single project and uh This is what I'm mostly uh, advocating and, you know, advising, starting with at least, you know, and then evolve from that uh, once it stops making sense. But I will say, I think boundary, you know, even if you are
0: using an umbrella or something like that and you have it split out that way, I think boundary is still a great way to create isolation and enforcement among contexts within like that core kind of business logic area.
3: Yeah. And it's, I mean, so much more than that. So uh it really deserves like a dedicated uh, episode or a dedicated talk and so on. Uh, the next article is going to briefly talk about boundary. So the thing is, you know, uh, we also use Boundary to explore our design to 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 figure out how can we uh, make better design. So the thing is that Boundary has a support for boundaries within a boundary. Uh, what this means is, you know, like you can think of it, you know, Boundary is like an application within an application, and you can just go turtles all the way down. You can go on as as much as you want. Now the thing is, of, uh, uh, in the project where I was testing it, it has a somewhat more complex business domain, and so I just went inside the core and I started drawing boundaries in there. You know, the first thing is, you know, boundary forces you; it doesn't allow cycles, so you need to, you know, figure out a way how to work this out. So as soon as I started drawing boundaries, I detected some cycles, and this was an immediate indication that something in design is off, and uh, then I, I needed to clean this up. And once I did that. I finally, you know, got sub boundaries in the core. I invoked a mix task. The thing is the boundary has a couple of mix tasks that allow you to visualize your boundaries. It produces graph similar to mix xref, but this one is, you know, at a higher level. So you can actually tell the forests for the trees. You know, this is one another added value of boundaries. You know, you think in groups rather than an individual relationships and so you know i was able to visualize these sub boundaries the graph and then you know i was just watching these like 10 boxes and arrows flying around and i kind of felt like uh, gandalf and lord of the rings you know i was just (laughs) staring at this diagram for like a half an hour and just contemplating like because it felt like there's too much dependencies in there you know and you know, at some point I figure out, okay, like we can carve this stuff out, we can carve that stuff out. And it led to a much uh, clearer design. So it kind of also, it goes beyond just, you know, controlling who can call who, but it also actually helps you, assists you in, you know, figuring out like, is my design well-organized? Are my pieces independent or are there too many dependencies uh, flying around? So... To me, another added value. More recently, we added some tasks. So, um, uh, props to BBT for funding that work, for you know, giving me a developer who was able to contribute to a couple of more mixed tasks. Uh, one that I'm specifically excited about uh, is visualizing functions, function dependencies inside a single module. The thing is that, you know, we uh, avoid using, avoid reaching for an upfront elaborate design. We use what I like to call a junk drawer pattern. So what this means is, uh like, initially, you don't know what exactly do you want to develop. So you just stash all these functions in a single context module, like typically top level context. And once it grows, once you start feeling it's like too big, you want to figure out how to split it. And so this helper task uh, is going to generate a diagram of function invocations inside that module. And you can see what you will see is like two patterns uh, the, you have independent verticals, and many of them will converge into a single smaller group of functions, you know. And so visually, you can see like, okay, maybe I should take this group of function, maybe that makes sense to extract it as a separate abstraction, you know. So of course, you think about like, what would that abstraction be named and stuff like that. And once you do that, you will end up with uh, independent verticals, and maybe some of them can be extracted separately again. So it's kind of a tool that aims to assist you with uh, with the designing. And it take, turns the story around. Like I remember when I was uh, younger, I don't know if they still tried to make those attempts. There were like a bunch of these attempts where you would like draw boxes, and the tool would then generate the code from like those UML diagrams and stuff like that. And uh, the boundary takes a different approach. You uh, specify the relationships in the code, and then it draws boxes uh, from those relationships for you. You know, so yeah, I, I, I had some good good experiences with it. But I would like to hear, you know, more people use it and uh, report back.
0: Awesome. So that's, that's for you, dear listener. You can give Boundary a try and let him know where it's working or where you're seeing uh, some issues. I want to respect your time. I know we're getting close to our time. But uh, I did want to ask also about... You said you have an, another article that's going to be coming out very shortly. Can you give us like a preview of what that's like? By the time this episode airs, it, it'll probably be out. But uh, maybe you can kind of introduce that a
3: little bit. So the next one is uh, going to talk about boundaries and going to explain our high-level divisions. You know, it's going to have some interesting... Uh... I would say controversial, heretical ideas. Like, for example, (laughs) we uh, consolidate all our schema modules under a single boundary, which is moved outside of the core. Uh, This actually makes things a little bit easier for us, and it actually simplifies working with boundary as well. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense to me uh, to do that. Then, the next article after that is going to dive deeper into uh, context module, and it's going to explain how we write our context operations. You already see you already seen some of that in the second part. Uh, the gist of the story there is that we uh, write our change set builders directly in uh, context modules. Not in schemas, as is advised by Ecto, hmm. uh, and I believe also Phoenix documentation. So our schemas do not contain change set functions. Change set functions are for us private implementation details of, uh, core operations and we place them as such, you know, um, like change set builders. Yeah. I also discussed how we use the width uh so many of our operations you have like this width pipeline uh, this uh, we use this much more often than the uh standard pipeline because many of our core uh functions ultimately return okay result or error reason, and width really works well with that then after that, i'm gonna talk about testing so testing is one uh one big topic uh, this is going to be i think maybe even the largest article in the the whole series uh Testing is something that is very important for us. So uh, we need our tests to be clear and to to give us good coverage and good confidence. You know, uh, this is the thing that. Many people, you know, I feel that there is a lot of confusion in the industry, a lot of, you know, different views. Uh, So for us, uh, most notably, tests don't drive the development. Uh, Our our requirement and analysis drives our development and tests support our development. And what we want from tests is confidence that our system is working properly, especially as we refactor it. So we want tests which are not fragile when we change some internals, but the behavior uh, still remains the same. We want our tests to be passing. And so we organize our tests in also like a pretty controversial way or somewhat controversial way. Uh, we test m- as much as we can at the a- external API level. So through REST or through uh, GraphQL and then going deeper only if we need to go deeper for like, typically if we cannot, you know, exercise some particular path uh, from the API itself. Well I love that you described
0: it as heretical uh because I think that's great you know it's interesting to challenge the uh perceptions or the uh the norms and just kind of experiment with that and like you know I'm sure you'll get feedback you know people say well why do you think this over this and and that'll help inform the decision then the design and so i just i look forward to being able to to follow along and I think it'll be fun
3: For what it's worth, you know, so I've been now doing this work for about a year and a half with VBT. Uh, Obviously, of course, I've tried uh, other more popular or uh, recommended approaches uh, previously, and the team has had tried the same thing themselves before my time. And uh I feel that, you know, uh, we are all in agreement that the, this works uh, well for us, that this has been an improvement. And we have like now a general, I think a solid idea on how our code is supposed to look like. And there are not, you know, a lot of discussions happening around that. It's now become mostly second nature for everyone.
2: I appreciate that you guys are taking the time to write about it because I feel like there's not a lot of writings more about the theory and like the organization. And so it's really interesting. I think you're, you validate some ideas that we've come up with at my job and also giving us new ideas for other things to try out. So appreciate you guys taking the time to write about your findings and experimentations in this regard.
3: Thank you.
0: It's our pleasure in any case. You know. Just to echo what Cade said, I appreciate that you guys are talking about it and sharing the insights because I know that, you know, having been through this myself, you know, just through years of development, we continually refine our ideas. And as new tools become available, it says, Oh, well, now there's another option, a new way of doing things. So it's, it's not like this is the one way only it's done. You know, there's always uh, refinement and I'm excited to see some of the more stuff that you guys talk about and, you know, for to offer feedback and things and to help inform that decision and that design. Before we close, though, I wanted to talk about another project that you'd started recently, which is called just simply CI. And I was just pleased to see that it's listed as an Elixir CI project. So maybe you can just kind of like tell us, like, what is it you're kind of doing here? And when, what are you playing with?
3: So the CI is a project that aims to be a continuous integration as a toolkit library, right so uh, it aims to give you all the building blocks you you, you need to build your own continuous integration uh, or to integrate with the existing ci cd's like github actions circle ci and stuff like that uh, uh, essentially it's uh, it's a, like a second write of a thing that i have already written for my previous company uh, so at my previous company we built our own ci in elixir at some point uh, i used to give a talk about it so that this like deserves a whole episode in and of itself the long story short is that when we were at some point migrating away from Travis, you know we were we figured out like uh, why don't we write this thing in elixir because we actually have all we need the The kind of overarching goal is that uh you know, all these black box uh these opaque CIs, uh they're kind of hard to work with. You know, you you have like you need this uh, YAML file or whatever configuration is required and they're they, they require like some special knowledge to work with them and in general they can be really uh you know some things are supported and what's not supported is not supported so you cannot do anything with it. The CI project uh, basically aims to be built bottom up. So it has like a bunch of plumbing, lower level plumbing, and then uh, porcelain, everything exposed. So you can assemble your own CI as much as you want. Uh, I feel that Elixir is a great fit for this uh, because, you know, CI is essentially a runner of commands, right? Or runner of tasks, which some of which you want to parallelize, other of which you want to channel. Through a pipeline, this is like a bread and butter of Beam. This is where Beam works fantastically. And I feel that, uh, you know, if you are able to express uh, your CI in the language that you use to build the rest of your system in, then it's much easier for everyone on the team to work with such CI, right? So first, you get better flexibility. And second, you you actually have uh, the property where everyone's an expert, as opposed to like uh, these Trevenses and Jenkinses and whatnot, where you typically had like one person on the team who you know breaks the first and they you just become an expert because no one else wants to do it and uh, <laughs> uh and then everyone turns to that single person you know i used to be that person in some teams and in other teams there were other people but it's like a, such a pattern because you know you learn your main programming language and now you have to learn something completely different to control that complex tool. And I feel that uh, we can do way better than than that. And this is essentially the exploration of the CI, but it's built on the existing experience. And for me working on uh, or using uh, Elixir powered continuous integration in practice, it was like the best CI I have ever worked with. Awesome.
0: Are you looking for any contributions or feedback from the community or kind of what
3: stage is it in for you? Well, I have like currently two contributors. uh, Well, two people who are working on some next phases. So at the moment, uh, not really, but uh, you know, you can always, if someone is interested, they can ping me like uh, I'm open for DMs on Twitter, for example. Uh, So, you know, just let me know and I'll see if I can find something. It's, It's really something that, you know, I'm doing as a as a fun, but also as sort of attempt to spread some ideas and I don't really push any time pressure on it. I want to do it, uh, like, uh, more properly rather than, you know, just hastily, uh, push something out. Most notably, you know, I was waiting for like two or three years because the idea before the idea is crystallized in my mind, the first implementation was very bulky. And I really want to, you know, have a design which is uh, modular from the ground up. So, you know, uh, you don't end up with a situation where you just have to write YAML of some sort to control it, but rather where you can use the elixir, you know, your regular Turing complete language that you know to compose these pieces together. So now that I have the idea, now the development has picked up, but, you know, it's still uh, not something that I'm going to... Invest a lot of speed in. You know, I'm going to try to do it more more thoughtfully. Awesome. Well, that's something interesting to watch for.
0: I am just curious if you can just say, do you envision it to be able to work with other projects like a Ruby project or something else that's not
3: Elixir? Yeah, yeah. This thing can. This thing is uh, should be able. You should be able to do anything you want with this thing, like run tests or build other kind of projects, whatever you want, because it will be at the same time toolkit for building your CI server which is like, you know, your own circle CI or whatever, and also just to, to run tasks. So whatever you want, whether it makes sense to, to to do this with Ruby project is another question, because you know, then you end up with the same challenge that you use a different technology or different language. Uh, but you could definitely be able to do that because this is what we did at uh, at AirClock, you know, where I used to work. We We built our own runner as well. So something that was actually, you know, listening on GitHub for events and uh, responding to those events and whatnot. And it was like pretty cool. Yeah. So it, it was like super great to see like you would have uh, this uh, commit message or commit com- pull request comment by the bot from our Elixir powered CI on the GitHub. You know, it would just mention like this pull request is ready to be merged and stuff like that. So uh, that was pre- pretty nice to see.
0: Well, Sasha, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today. I'm, I'm glad to have you on. This is your first time that you've, we've had you on the Thinking Elixir podcast. So Thank you for coming. And uh, thank you for sharing some of this insight. And I really do. I honestly do look forward to seeing this uh, sequence of blog articles continue as we talk about in just as the community, how we can build more maintainable applications. Well, if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, you mentioned you have open DMs on Twitter, but is there any other way like what's the best way for people to reach you?
3: Well, I would say that the, the if if privately you can start with d m on twitter and uh, i mean otherwise for any sort of questions or advice uh, I typically advise Elixir Forum, you know, as uh, asking because uh, you can get answers from more people than just me. If I don't have the time, someone else can uh, answer as well. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, other people actually can provide better answers than, than myself. So for any sort of like advice on how should I do this with Elixir, I would advise actually asking go on Elixir Forum. For any privates, you know, just start with Twitter or DM and then we can take it from there.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thank you for having me. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use or on your social media, so others can discover the show more easily.